You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. The influx of Jews to Palestine at the beginning of the 20th century did not just alarm the Arabs, but also the very pious Jews already living in Israel, forming the old Yishuv, quote-unquote, the old settlement. To them, these new arrivals seemed ultra-secular, even blasphemous. The man who hoped to bridge the gap between the new arrivals and the veteran settlers was Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, known universally as Rav Cook. Rav in Hebrew means rabbi. Rav Cook was born in 1865. He moved to Palestine in 1904 and served as the rabbi of the Jaffa community. Jaffa is a city adjacent to Tel Aviv. He was a deeply religious man and a widely venerated scholar. Rav Cook was not willing to sanction the lifestyle of those new immigrants, but he also was not willing to write them off. Like no one else of his time from the religious camp, Rav Kook did not view the new arrivals as apostates. It was the job of the rabbis, he believed, to return them to their Judaism. The opponents of Rav Kook were shocked by some of his writings and by some of his policies. They were led by Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who was the rabbi of the Yishuv HaYashan, the old settlement of Jerusalem. And along with him, by most of the rabbinic leaders of the Gudith Israel worldwide. Rabbi Zunfeld, in particular, had a warm, personal relationship with Rav Kook. In 1913 through 1914, the two of them locked arms and engaged in a historic pilgrimage to the north of Israel, what was known as the Repentance Campaign, through the northern settlements. Though his personal respect for Rav Kook remained unshaken, Rabbi Sonnenfeld felt compelled to oppose vehemently the views espoused by Rav Kook, especially those after World War I, when the Zionists gained control of the settlement of the Yishuv in Israel. Although Rav Kook dressed like the old guard and maintained that that traditional way of life may not be abandoned, he nonetheless appealed and was accepted by the new Israelis like no other rabbinic figure. While other rabbis repudiated Zionism, Rav Kook was sympathetic to the movement and to its followers. Rav Kook believed that the Jewish people were bringing about a new historical era in their determination to reclaim the land and simultaneously entering into the phase of history foretold by the prophets as Atchalta de Geula, the beginning of redemption. Even the most irreligious were players in this process, fulfilling the word of God that would usher in this all-new era. Rav Kook believed that Zionism was somehow part of the divine process of redemption that would lead to the coming of the Messiah. However, in the eyes of other great rabbinic leaders, Zionism could only be another false Messiah in the guise of a national movement. There was nothing about Zionism that fit the traditional ideas of Jewry about the Messianic era. The Messiah would have to be a person and not an organization. 
that person would have to be a scholarly, observant Jew descended from the house of David. He'd represent Torah and lead Jewry to world, pardon me, lead Jewry and the world towards spiritual repentance. None of the primary leaders of Zionism remotely fit that description. Therefore, Zionism had to be a false messiah whose demise would be beneficial for the Jewish people. And so you can understand there was quite opposition to Rav Kook, despite the fact that he was so beloved by so many people in the not-yet-religious and in the very religious camp. Rav Kook saw secular Judaism and assimilation as a passing phase of Jewish life. Once the Jewish state was established on the soil of the Holy Land, he believed, the spiritual renewal and return tradition would follow automatically, even if slowly. Rabbi Berowine notes, Thus assured by his faith of the eventual triumph, he could afford to be sanguine about the temporary heresy that engulfed Israel. His opponents, both in the secular and the religious camps, differed with him on not only this point, but also regarding the so-called temporary nature of secular Judaism. His fellow rabbis were convinced that it was a serious and permanent movement that would reshape the Jewish world if it allowed to be to proceed unchecked. They were therefore much less charitable and more suspicious and contentious towards their opponents. As far as the garb of the secular Israelis that did not conform in any which way with the traditional Jewish lifestyle and appearance, Rav Kook reasoned that just like the construction workers who built the Holy Temple surely wore muddy dungarees and muddy boots, likewise, these Israeli settlers, they may appear not religious, but don't be mistaken by their garb. In 1914, Rav Kook was invited to the Goodest Israel Convention in Europe and went in the hope of convincing the Guda leaders to take a more positive stance regarding the Zionist movement. His trip was very interrupted by World War I. He never got to address the conference, which was canceled. And while there, as the war erupted, he was invited. He could not return to Israel, so he was invited in 1915 to 1918 to be the head of Machzike Hadas, a large congregation in London. And he accepted this position on condition that he would be able to return to Israel as soon as it was possible. While he was at the helm of Machzike Hadas, he had an impact upon all of Anglo Jewry. He tried to convince London Jewry to take a more active role in Zionist ideology. And he said about influencing the English government not to deport Russian Jews who had fled to the British shores. As the lobbying that would result in the Balfour Declaration was gaining ground, there were Jewish parliamentarians who maintained that Judaism is a religion without nationalistic aspirations. Bereft of Jewish knowledge, these members of parliament made a lot of assumptions, as assimilated Jews in roles of power often do, for fear of being accused of possessing dual loyalty. You'll recall how we spoke about Justice Brandeis, who was accused of being an inappropriate candidate to be a justice on the Supreme Court because he was a Zionist. They said that he had dual loyalties, to which Brandeis responded, dual loyalties do not imply conflicting loyalties. You can, be, you can be loyal to your city, and that does not conflict with having loyalty to your state. And you can be loyal to your state and also be loyal 
to your country. And you can be loyal to your country and yet be loyal to God. There doesn't have to be a conflict. The point that we wish to make, and we're going to take this opportunity, and we want to corroborate this, is that people whose wisdom I've begun to challenge have no compunction offering their opinion and weighing in, regardless of the fact that they may be ignorant, unfamiliar, or unqualified to render an opinion. As this is a common phenomenon with dreadful consequences, I've afforded this some thought. The people guilty of this, I believe, can be divided into three different categories. A, those which have an agenda. B, those who see an opportunity to vindicate their position by catching those who they oppose in compromising situations. This might be a cousin of position A. And C, unintelligent people who have not the wisdom to control their mouths. And there's no shortage of these either. So we're going to begin with C, the ignorant. I'm going to start with the world which I know best, and that's the rabbinical world of Judaism. For example, upon occasion, there's a couple experiencing marital strife. It is not unusual for this couple to bring their difficulties before a rabbi, as I'm sure it's not different or uncommon for evangelical to go to their pastor, for a Catholic to go to their priest. To qualify as a rabbi means mastering technical components of Jewish law. But that's all you need to know, certain aspects of Jewish law. To the best of my knowledge in Yeshiva University, which turns out a lot of rabbinical candidates, they also require rabbinical students to undergo counseling courses, which is surely beneficial, but it does not make a graduate any more of a therapist than a student who took Psych 101 becoming a clinical psychologist. And I never got the fact just because a dilemma comes across the desk of a rabbi, or a pastor, or a priest, or any other individual, they may deem themselves qualified to offer counseling. Now, I'm sure I'm condemning a very small minority, but it is beyond me why unqualified individuals do not hesitate to opine way above their pay grade. Or another example. During the COVID pandemic, there were religious leaders who voiced their opinions whether or not people should vaccinate. The majority said that it's important to vaccinate, but others felt otherwise. Who are they? Are they a doctor? Are they have, do they have knowledge in this regard? If you don't know what you're talking about, refer to those who are knowledgeable. Yom Kippur, the most holy day of the Jewish calendar, is a day of, it's a fast day. So if a person is not well, you don't go to the rabbi to ask if you must eat, you go to a doctor. If you have a security question, you go to a person in law enforcement. You have to go to an expert who can render a decision because of their knowledge. Commentators in the media also need to have expertise to render an opinion. But I learned a long time ago that this is not necessarily the case. During the Gulf War, there was endless commentary is when the ground war would begin after seemingly endless days of aerial assaults. My line at the time was, is that the ground war is up in the air. But I'm going to give you a quote now from CNN anchor Wolf Blitzer. After several weeks of pounding from the air, and they were knocking Iraqi targets in Kuwait and elsewhere in Iraq, at that point they realized, you know what, you can't just do it from the air, you got to send ground troops in. 
The reason I mentioned the Gulf War and the ground war aspect of it is that it taught me a profound lesson that has saved me hours, surely days of my life. I learned then that the commentary offered on the radio, or any media for that matter, is the opinion of an individual who is paid to talk, even if they have nothing to say and nothing to add. And I'm going to prove my point. But first, let me, let me qualify that inviting an expert to comment on their field of scholarship, of course, can be enlightening, but that need not be the case. In other words, if you watch the Olympics and you have an expert explain the subtlety of what the guy just did on the parallel bars, you'd never notice those things unless they were pointed out. This I cannot deny. <laughs> Although I never did get, why is it that the sportscaster offering commentary on golf who's speaking to, a stu speaking to you from a studio, for heaven's sake, is whispering. I don't get that. But anyways, sometimes they call on an expert whose expertise is defined by the title that he or she has appendaged to their name. In Israel, it is very common when there is a demonstration in a very religious neighborhood, or let's say there's a funeral of a famous religious luminary, they will call upon some PhD from some university who doesn't know a flying flip what he's talking about, to render his quote-unquote scholarly opinion to a thoroughly ignorant audience as if he were analyzing the finer points of behavior of some bizarre Amazonian monkeys. To me, this is reminiscent of an article I saw in, it was such an endearing article, I even remember the date, May 7th, 1995, an issue devoted to World War II and the Pacific and it was entitled, quote, The Biggest Con Man in the Marines, about a private who convinced his senior officers that he was fluent in Japanese, thus sparing himself from going to the front line, and he would then interview Japanese prisoners of war. He didn't know a word of Japanese, but he was so convincing. He'd say, Hujo waju, kuju waju, waju, but he would say all these words. The prisoners had no idea what he was saying. Sometimes they were just either begin laughing or something. And the, and the American officer said, what are they saying? He said, they're nervous. They can't talk yet. And he just made up whatever he fancied. Like that famous scene in the movie, Life is Beautiful. And the father's trying to spare his son from knowing that they're actually in a concentration camp. And he's called upon to translate the orders of the SS. And the SS is saying this thing and this punishment and this punishment. And he translates, on Wednesdays, there will be no jelly donuts etc. Okay, now at last. The big lesson that I learned from the Gulf War news commentary, the first war that I personally experienced, at that time we were listening to the news as if it was a vital nutrition. And what I learned was how the listener, and that would be you and me, how we are being taken for a ride. Here's the example which was so enlightening to me. It was an epiphany. One commentator said that it would be weeks before the ground war begins. Ten seconds later, the ground war begun. And this commentator, who just milliseconds before said what was obviously idiocy on stilts, did not swallow his words, did not attempt to modify them, but kept on going about another new topic about which he knew nothing without missing a beat. So this brings us to our category A, those with an agenda. Truth is immaterial. Holocaust deniers are a very good example, considering the fact that the Holocaust is the most documented crime in history. 
We'll deal with this category in our coming episode, God willing, when we deal with our conclusion of Rav Cook discussion. But now we're going to address those who are prompted and motivated to speak out because their position has seemingly been vindicated whether or not they know all of the pertinent facts. And here's a really good place for me to introduce you to an excellent Yiddish expression, which is, aha, uh-huh. not to be confused with the English expression, aha. Uh-huh. Now, aha, uh-huh, like the aha moment, that connotes mental enlightenment of a problem. Or when you solve a mystery, an epiphany, a revelation, the sudden realization, inspiration, insight, recognition, the aha moment you experience when you all of a sudden remember, oh, now I remember what that song was when you're trying to remember that, that tune from hours earlier. We've already discussed in the series Herzl's aha moment. But we're talking about something totally different. Not an aha moment, but aha. And I'm going to explain to you aha with a story. There was a uh, fellow on New York's Lower East Side. All the Lower East Side stories always have a restaurant as part of the story. But So this Mr. Goldberg, every single day and every single week and every single month, for year after year, decade after decade, he went into the same restaurant, the same kosher restaurant, and he had the very same lunch. One day he walks in, he sits down in his regular seat. The waiter brings him his split pea soup. And then Goldberg looks at the soup and he says, Waiter, waiter, waiter! Yes, Mr. Goldberg, I can't eat the soup. What do you mean, you can't eat the soup? I can't eat the soup. Mr. Goldberg, please. For 35 years, I'm serving you the same soup. You eat it every single day. I can't eat it. What do you mean you can't eat it? I cannot eat it. Mr. Goldberg, please. I mean, this is ridiculous. 35 years. I can't eat the soup. You eat the soup. So Goldberg gets up and the waiter sits down. And the waiter says, there's no spoon. And Goldberg says, "Uh uh-huh. That's what uh aha means. It is that revelation, right? And now I'm going to take you to a very unfortunate news story that broke this week, the week meaning that I'm recording. Now, this episode may not be aired for another 10 weeks, so I'm going to describe the events. And I should also add that it's my fervent hope that what we say will have a lasting value that will pass the test of time and be as relevant 10 weeks from now as it is today and hopefully, God willing, as trenchant, edifying years and years from now. So March 16th, 2021, eight people were killed in a mass murder that took place in three different locations near Atlanta, Georgia. Everyone was horrified to hear the news. A shooting rampage at three spas in the Atlanta metro area Tuesday, leaving eight people dead and one wounded. Police apprehending one suspect 21-year-old Robert Aaron Long of Woodstock, Georgia. Law enforcement saying that video evidence suggests that it's extremely likely that the same person is responsible for all three shootings. New surveillance footage obtained by Atlanta affiliate CBS 46 shows suspect Robert Long waited in his car for an hour before he calmly exited the vehicle and allegedly started the rampage that killed eight people, six of whom were Asian women. Clearly, we're dealing with a madman. It may never be possible to assess what was going on in a very troubled and deranged mind. But this did not stop the media from making speculations and assuming motive. 
Investigators in two counties are now building their cases against 21 year old Aaron Robert Long for the eight homicides. So detectives are working to find out everything they can about Long and what led up to the crimes he's accused of committing. Here's our John Sherrick with what we've learned so far. Investigators are finding out that Robert Aaron Long in the past three years went from being active in Christian outreaches at Sequoia High School in Cherokee County. Known for carrying his Bible everywhere, a teen who enjoyed playing the guitar and drums, to being what detectives say now is a confessed mass killer. The very next day, meaning just a few hours after the polling crime occurred, when there's this thick crowd hovering over the facts, the Washington Post ran a report with the headline, quote, Christian leaders wrestle with Atlanta shootings suspects, Southern Baptist ties. And here I am indebted to Dr. Albert Moeller, who always, always has something valuable, insightful, and morally enriching to say in his daily briefing. The lead in the Washington Post article was, years before being suspected of killing eight people in a suburb of Atlanta, including six Asian women, Robert Aaron Long was active in a Southern Baptist congregation, his youth pastor said Wednesday. Now, what we're talking about is a story that is not yet a story. Even the Washington Post doesn't know where to go with this. It begins by telling us that years ago, the young man was active in a Southern Baptist congregation. There is no obvious connection between his church membership and his church activity years ago and the crimes of which he is now alleged, not even enough to jump to any conclusion. And yet and yet, the Washington Post has not only connected the dots, but also makes reference to a sermon that the preacher on the Sunday before the crime by quoting Reverend Jerry Dockery and selections from his sermon. The sermon was about the apocalypse, meaning the return of Jesus and the hell awaiting those who do not believe. But Christians... Even conservative Christians have difference of understanding regarding how the end of times will unfold. However, all biblical Christians believe that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, he will judge the nations with a rod of iron. This is Christianity 101 that even I understand. All that we can deduce from the pastor's message was that he was preaching what you would expect a Christian preacher to preach on this theme and on this text. But for the readers of the Washington Post, that's likely to be rather shocking language. Then the reporter continues, it is not uncommon for pastors to preach on the apocalypse, and it's unclear whether Long heard the pastor's teaching Sunday. Let me say that one more time. It's unclear whether Long, that's the alleged perpetrator, heard the pastor's teaching on Sunday. Now, wait a second. The article begins by suggesting that we're going to be looking at some kind of connection and causality. But the fact is, there is no indication as to whether or not the gunman even attended church and heard the sermon. And a whole long article is then, a, then talks about this with just a qualifier tucked in at the very end. The overwhelming impression of this article concerns a connection between the church participation of the gunman and the atrocious deed that he committed. Now, factually, there may actually be a connection. But that's something that neither the reporter nor anyone else knows at this stage. As Dr. Moeller said, do we run from these questions? No. We don't run from them. 
but we don't run into them as if we have the answers before we even know what questions are particularly germane and appropriate. So what motivated this reporter and other people from the media to connect the behavior of the gunman to what he heard in church, if he even heard it in church? One thing should be absolutely clear, and this one thing is, is that he would never hear in church to take the life of an innocent human being whether or not they believe in the apocalypse and whether or not they lead a life that is moral or immoral. On the contrary, in Matthew chapter 24, it's taught that the return of the Messiah should motivate to holy behavior and not to unrighteous living. So what we see here is that Yiddish expression, uh-huh, it's the gotcha, and a chance to dig again against evangelical Christians who fight against sexual immorality and perversion, have taken such a blatantly unpopular stance to liberals regarding abortion. More about those who know not what they say in our upcoming episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to telefromjerusalem.com.